Thanks Jess and the team for leading us this morning and especially just around in a very simple but great way around the communion table. I want to read to you uh, this parable I came across uh, several years ago. Um, it's from a guy called Theodore Weedle. He wrote it in 1953. Um, so I'm just going to read it as he wrote it. If I wrote it, I'd probably do it differently. So we get it as he set it down. On a dangerous sea coast where shipwrecks often occur, there was once a crude little life-saving station. The building was just a hut and there was only one boat. But the few devoted members kept a constant watch over the sea and with no thought for themselves went out day and night tirelessly searching for those lost at sea. This wonderful little station saved many lives and it became famous. And some of those who were saved and various others in the surrounding area wanted to become associated with the station and give of their time and money and effort for the support of its work. New boats were bought and new crews trained and the little life-saving station grew. Some of the members of the life-saving station were unhappy that the building was so crude and poorly equipped. They felt that a more comfortable place should be provided as the first refuge of, of those saved from the sea. So they replaced the emergency cot beds with real beds and put better furniture in the enlarged building. Now the life-saving station became a popular gathering place for its members and they decorated it beautifully and furnished it exquisitely because they used it as a sort of club. Fewer members were now interested in going to sea on life-saving missions, so they hired lifeboat crews to do the work. The life-saving motive still prevailed in this club's decoration, and there was a liturgical lifeboat in the room where the club initiations were held. About this time, a large ship was wrecked off the coast, and the hired crews brought in boatloads of cold, wet, and half-drowned people. They were dirty and sick, and some were from foreign countries. The beautiful new club was in chaos. So the property committee immediately had a shower house built outside the club where victims of shipwreck could be cleaned up before coming inside. At the next meeting, there was a split in the club membership. Most of the members wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities as being unpleasant and a hindrance to the normal social life of the club. Some members insisted upon life-saving as their primary purpose and pointed out that they were still called a life-saving station. But they were finally voted down and told if they wanted to save the lives of all the various kinds of people who were shipwrecked in those waters, they could begin their own life-saving station down the coast. And so they did. As the years went by, the new station experienced the same changes that had occurred in the old one. It evolved into a club, and yet another life-saving station was founded. History continued to repeat itself, and if you visit that seacoast today, you will find a number of exclusive clubs along that shore. Shipwrecks are frequent in those waters, but most of the people drown. This parable highlights a perennial danger confronting the church, becoming an irrelevant club 
as it loses sight of its mission. Having said that, though, I believe that in most of the people I encounter, there's a a desire within us to be relevant as a community of people and as individuals, to personally make a difference in the lives of the people where we live, where we work, where we study, where we play. We want to influence them towards becoming followers of Jesus Christ. Often, though, we feel ineffective and discouraged and we lose our passion. And it's then that we can settle for second best, a life-saving station for members. It was on the evening of the first Resurrection Sunday that Jesus' followers were huddled behind locked doors. Fear had gripped their despairing hearts. They were concerned about the Jew- that the Jewish officials would find them and come and arrest them. They were quite anxious about this, worried that the tragic fate of Jesus would soon be theirs. And unexpectedly, the risen Jesus appeared in their midst. Peace be with you. And joy replaced fear as the disciples saw his hands and his feet and his side. He repeated it, peace be with you. And then this, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you just a little sentence. As the Father has sent me, said Jesus, I am sending you. And I think in this, this little phrase, we see better than anywhere else that mission lies deep in the heart of the Father. The Father sent Jesus and Jesus says, I'm sending you on the Father's mission. You see, the Father sent his Son in the world to seek and to save what was lost. And now as a continuation of that same mission, not a new mission, It's the same mission we are sent on the same mission as Jesus was sent. It's not a double mission. It's not a new mission. It's not something we dream up. It is the Father's mission. Tim Dearborn said this, It's not the church of God, not the disciples of Jesus, which has a mission. I reckon this is really important. It's the God of mission who has a church. It's not the church of God which has a mission. So we don't sit down and dream up and say, now, what have we got to do? There's a mission that's operating. The church is birthed to continue that mission. We don't have to scratch our heads about it. It's clear. It's the Father's mission. We're here to continue the mission of the Father, the one that Jesus began. I read, well, I heard, no, I read this. It was an interview um, Dallas Willard did with Brian McCallum. Brian McCallum, they're actually talking about Islam. And then Dallas Willard popped this gem into this interview. Remember, in today's world, a religion is valued by the benefits it brings to its non-adherence. Our value. 
The measure of who we are is the value we bring to the non-adherents, the non-members. So let's just go back. How was Jesus sent? He was sent as a missionary. Remember, he was dwelling with his father. And we read in Philippians, he didn't grasp equality with God, something to hang on to. But he let it go and came to earth. John 1 says the word was there in the beginning. And then the word became flesh. Jesus. That's a huge cross, isn't it? Crossover. The word that's pre-existent enfleshes himself in Jesus. We call it the incarnation. That's how Jesus was sent. And he sends you and I to serve as missionaries. He's asking us to do something similar to what he did to save mankind. He's asking us to cross barriers socially, culturally, neighbourly, all sorts of barriers to be on mission. And I'm not, not all that sure. I know I, I lose sight of this. We're in a sense here to incarnate now the message of Jesus, to enflesh the message of Jesus to those who don't have it yet. That's the picture. Jesus, the incarnate word of God, fleshed God on earth. And we're to flesh God on earth as we're sent. Jesus often said, and I, on one occasion, he's out looking out over the fields that are ripe for harvest. And if you start moving around our country areas now, crops are flowering and starting to set seed. This was just ready before harvest. And Jesus looks out of it and he said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. See, I'm on the Father's mission, says Jesus. And that's often referred to in this way in John's Gospel. And if I can put it this way, Jesus came to reveal the Father's love to the world. God so loved the world that he sent Jesus. He's come to reveal the Father's love, a very big and broad and holistic term. This kind of Christianity says God is expressing his love to all he has made through our acts of kindness our acts of service, through our transformed lives, through our words. We're invited to leave our life of accumulation, of competition, of self-centeredness, all that stuff we want to grasp onto for safety and security and join the Father with his mission of love, blessing and peace. What did we sing in oceans? That was just so appropriate to me. I'm going to risk it. I'm going to walk out on the waters and I'm going to trust Great call to us. For us to be missional means that we're oriented towards the needs of the world rather than oriented towards our own preservation. Want to be a life-saving station for preservation? Or are we going to orient our lives towards the world 
probably 15 years ago, I forgot to look up the date, Leith Anderson wrote a book called Dying for Change. And he puts it this way, if Christians and the church are to be more effective in reaching modern pagans, we will need to go to them. Sounds obvious. But I hear so often, well, here we are. Here's the church. We meet here at 9.30. It's written on the board out there. They know where we are. Come. That's not sent. That's come. And so the church does a whole lot to make itself attractive. I'm not sure about it. I've, I've been through that phase, pastoring a church, make ourselves attractive. And what difference did it make to those walking past? Diddly squat. Diddly squat. They still didn't walk in. You see, we're sent. He says this, in other words, we need to change the starting point of evangelism. We need to start where they are instead of where we are. And then he goes on and says this, which I'm still thinking through, but I'm going to throw it out here anyway. And when modern pagans do become Christians, they may not be able to make the sociological jump to the traditional churches and organizations now available. They will need new forms and expressions of the church which are now not imagined. Churches for the previously unchurched. Now, the, the reason why I'm not sure about this is when my, our second daughter got married, our precious little girl, half the people who were there were their non-Christian friends and friends from the workspace. And she came to me and said, Dad, we actually want to sing three or four of the songs we usually sing and just have a great time of worship to start the service together before we get married because this is our life and this is the Jesus we want to honour. I said, oh, I love that, sweetie. She said, but how are all our non-Christian friends going to go with it? I said, we'll have to wait and see, won't we? And just person after person at the reception from the non-Christian friend says, is that what you usually do on Sunday? That was amazing. That's why I'm not sure I agree with the change of forms. I don't know. But there were so many of the friends of our kids that day who said, how amazing is that you people really believe in Jesus? Because people were just sold out, heart and soul, at the beginning of that wedding. I have not been in a space that was electric like that one. Oh, yes, I have. There's been a couple here that have been pretty electric like that and other places I've been, but that's why I might question that little bit of Leith Anderson from personal experience. But here's the question I, I want to ask of you this morning. I can almost ask it removed from you, but I can't. Is Bentley Baptist oriented towards the needs of the world or to its own preservation? Can I ask it in your groups? Ask it personally. The uh, war in Iraq gave us a new term for journalists. I don't know whether you remember it, embedded journalists. And what you would see instead of journalists sitting way out on the fringes of the war or somewhere else and reporting a day or two after everything had happened, you'd see them actually in the tanks and in the hummers roaring round in the centre of the battlefield, bringing their reports from right in the centre of the war, right in the thick of the fighting. You see it now in the, the riots going on in Hong Kong. You see them all with their masks on standing there hoping no one pings them off, you know, giving their reports. They're embedded 
in the action. And it's easy to see being a Christian as, as a part-time activity, something we can put in for the church when we've completed all our normal daily activities. And for so many today in the church, we've completely divorced our work life, our social life, our family life, our interests from spiritual life and from what the church means to us. And we have this sacred, secular division. I reflect on the incredible opportunities I had for ministry when I was very active with the Prostate Cancer Foundation, with Cancer Council of South Australia, serving cuppers at the annual show. A couple of the churches we were part at set up a tent and just served cups of tea to people going by and provided a space to sit. Tearing around the basketball or tennis court, being a member of school councils, administering RE programs in schools, being a helper at school sports days and so on and so on. This is about being God's person in the community, embedded in the community, if I can borrow that term. And I want to call this embedded evangelism, deliberately and prayerfully executed. Where's God got you embedded? Your workspace, your family space, the space where you play. They're not divorced from Jesus. These are the places you're sent to. You're the embedded evangelist. Could ask this question. Where could you actively embed yourself? Do you have some time? Can you find a space where you can embed yourself, the sent one, on mission? As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you and often I hear people say well I I actually get that I understand that but I can't do that I don't know what to do I need help well I think we do know what to do but we we kind of get a bit worried in our society about being a little bit out there with living our faith and sowing. Well, I want to let you know that the best help you can ever get is right near you, in fact, closer than you think. As Jesus gave them the mission, he did what? He breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, I read a little bit this week and gave up. I've tried over time to try and... Where does that in... John's Gospel connect with what happened 50 days later on the day of Pentecost and the coming of the... Oh, you want to lead, read the argy-bargy on it. I actually have got to the stage where I don't care because what we see in these passages is a mission is given and at the same time as the mission is given, the Spirit of God is given. You can argue how those fit together. They both say the same thing. Mission and Holy Spirit belong together. Fearful, scared, worried, you've got the Holy Spirit living in you as you're sent. This is, this is just something amazing God does. So for me, more than trying to work out the theological niceties between those two connections, it is that we see that the chief actor of the mission of the church and of us individually is the Holy Spirit. 
We call it the book of Acts. I've heard many people over the years say that should be called the book of the Acts of the disciples. I still want to say no. It's the book of the Acts of the Holy Spirit. That's what the book is about. The book of Acts is about Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. It's about the activity of the Holy Spirit of God on mission. This fact so patent to Christians in the first century may be largely forgotten in our own. So if it's forgotten for you, I am reminding you this morning that we are not alone in mission. We have the Spirit of God. We easily lose our nerve and our sense of direction and turn the divine initiative into a human enterprise. It all depends on me becomes the whole struggle. This is what we've got to do as a church and we, we think it's dependent on us. And I believe it's bedeviling both the thinking and the practice of mission in our churches these days. We've forgotten it is the mission of the Father. Jesus said, this is not all about you. You're not on your own in this. It's not your responsibility in that sense. Let's go to the book of Acts, chapter 1 and verse 4 on the day of Pentecost, leading up to it. On one occasion, while Jesus was eating with them, so it's the resurrected Lord, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And then this, Jesus. So what he's saying is, you wait. Don't get all about that. I've got to do this on my own and deploy all your own resources. He says, wait. And then Jesus said to them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You will be my witnesses there, the sent ones in Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The very mandate to engage in this worldwide mission is only given at the same time as the Spirit of God and all his gifts is given. They belong together. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And with that, Jesus breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. The marching orders and the gift of the Spirit come in the same package. We need to understand this to actually help us really engage intelligently in mission. As it was for Jesus so it is for us. you remember his baptism? He's there being baptized and the heavens open and there's a voice from the heavens says, this is my beloved son. I take delight in him. What's the next phrase? Jesus begins his mission at that point. He was led by the Spirit. All to be tempted. Forty days. He's just, he's ready now to start the mission of the Father. And the first thing we read is he's being led by the Spirit. Luke records things very similarly, but a little differently in the first, uh, in the beginnings of his gospel. And in Luke 4, Jesus has just come back to Galilee from one of his earliest missions. He's come back in the power of the Spirit. He went into the synagogue unrolls the scroll he found in place where, it, and then he reads this, the Spirit of 
of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Jesus is doing the Father's mission, but who with? The Spirit of God is on him. In a sense, he's reminding himself there, but he's showing us this is how it works. Mission and Spirit belong together. If for Jesus himself, mission was derived from his self-immersion in that flood tide of the Holy Spirit, how could his followers possibly be involved in the same mission except through the same immersion in the Holy Spirit? Bishop Faison wrote these words back in 1958. The story of the Acts is the story of the stupendous missionary achievement of a community inspired to make a continual series of creative experiments by the Pentecostal spirit. Against a static church, unwilling to obey the guidance of the Holy Spirit, no gates of any sort are needed to oppose its movement for it does not move. But against a church that is on the move, inspired by the Pentecostal spirit, neither the gates of hell nor any other gates can prevail. If we're on the move, out in the ocean, stepping on the waves, nothing can swallow us up because the Pentecostal spirit is with us on the move. God is at work in his world. Whose mission is it? It's the Father's. God is at work in his world by the Holy Spirit, drawing men and women to himself. You know, when you run around your workstations and your play places and all the rest of it, God's actually active in his world by the Spirit, drawing these people towards himself. I, I think we need that as a base understanding of theology. Jesus sends us out into the world on mission, eyes opened by the Spirit to join him in what he's doing in this world. How's that sound? Doesn't sound so scary, does it? God's out there drawing men and women to himself and he says, hey, I'm drawing them, you come and join me. You be me with flesh on and help them come to me. Join me in what I'm doing in the world. And I always add, and try not to stuff it up for me. <laughs> Which means we keep listening to the Spirit of God as we do mission. Look, there are a lot of challenges here, and for that reason I'm going to continue on mission. I'm, I'm trying mostly to stimulate thinking and try and cut into spaces where we may have lost our way in mission. But one of the great challenges of mission is to be authentically and meaningfully involved with unbelievers. Now, I'll be really safe here. There's not one of you here this morning who doesn't have either a very shallow or deeper relationships with unbelievers. Welcome to the mission field. It's not as hard as you thought. It's not as hard as you thought. But... We need to be authentically and meaningfully involved with unbelievers. It takes time and commitment to build relationships with them. 
It means growing in love and compassion for people. For God loves all that he has made and he's drawing them to himself. Let's pause. Father, thank you that Jesus stepped out of all the wonder and the glory and the beauty and all the rest of it of heaven, of a space with you and was obedient to the mission you'd called him to on earth. Thank you that the word was enfleshed in Jesus, rolled out his swag amongst us, moved into our neighborhood, incarnated himself so that we could be drawn to you, Father. We're here because Jesus' mission is great and wonderful. Thank you for what Jesus did. Thank you that the crux of all this is the cross of Christ, which we've celebrated this morning. Father, so infuse us with your love. So infuse us with compassion for those that we meet in our workspaces, in the playground, in the schoolyard, where we play our sport, where we are in our families. Father, so infuse us with your love for them that we will live a good life before them, that we will be prepared to speak to them about Jesus, that they too might receive their inheritance and become a believer a believer who then goes out and shares in their neighbourhoods. Thank you that when you call us and when you send us out, you give us the Pentecostal spirit to be with us, to lead us, to encourage us, to strengthen us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.